Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Well, we're so, so glad you're here. And um, we're so, so lucky to have our guest here this evening. Uh, I'm going to dive in and, and be real quick about my introduction so that we can get to the, to the, to the heart of what we're here for. Um, tonight, we are here to celebrate the launch of Karolina Václaviak's new novel, Life Events. Um, and we're here on a platform provided by Skylight Books. We're a neighborhood bookstore in Los Feliz in Los Angeles. We've got a big tree in the middle of the store. Um, and we're open nowadays. If you feel like browsing for books, we're being very careful in all the ways we can, but our doors are open. Um, we're gonna be releasing this conversation as a podcast and it'll be available for, for viewing afterwards. So if you wanna share with friends, please please do so. And please um, click on the button that says order life events and get your copy of the book. Uh, I think it's um, a, new, a, a new, very, very um, positive review of the Times again today. It's really exciting. Um, all right. I'm going to dive in uh, introduce our guests. Karolina Václaviak is the author of the novels How to Get into the Twin Palms and the Invigors. Formerly an editor at The Believer, she is the executive editor, editor of culture at BuzzFeed News. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, The Virginia Quarterly Review, Hazlitt, and elsewhere. And we're very happy to have in conversation with Karolina tonight, Roxanne Gay. Roxanne Gay is the author of the books Aiti and Untamed State, the New York Times bestselling Bad Feminist, the nationally bestselling Difficult Women, and the New York Times bestselling Hunger, A Memoir of My Body. She is also a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. I'm super excited to hear the conversation tonight. And the last part of what we'll do is take questions from y'all. So start thinking about what questions you might want to ask. You can feel free to chime in in the chat if you like and share those. Uh, or there's a button at the bottom of your screen that says ask a question. And if you um, click there, then You'll be able to put your question up, we'll be able to see it and vote it up. All right, Life Events, briefly, and then I'll leave it to um, the words of the book itself. Life Events follows a woman who at 37 is on the verge of divorce and anxiously dreading the death of everyone she loves. She combats her existential crisis by avoiding her husband and aimlessly driving along the freeways of California looking for an escape, one that eventually comes when she discovers a collective of what are called exit guides. Booklist has described it as richly symbolic and undeniably haunting. R.O. Kwan calls it brilliant and exhilarating. Many, many beautiful words about this book. I like this one um, sentence from Hannah Lilith Asadi, who says, But Slaviak rightly recasts the American West as the territory of wandering dreams and dreamers, and the land where this life and the improbable afterlife most often collide. Let's have a very warm virtual welcome, beaming whatever sort of like digital applause we can, and 
uh, welcome Carolina Vaslaviak. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for everyone coming. And I just want to shout out that Roxanne's Bad Feminist, if I'm correct, is in its 18th print printing the seminal text. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, so excited to be in conversation with you today. Um, so I'm going to read a part from the sort of later in the book. Um, Evelyn goes to an afterlife um, an afterlife convention, and it's as it's full of weirdos as you might imagine. So here goes. The smokers were already lining the stone benches outside, the heat already peaking at 9 a.m., the misters on full blast. I nodded and tapped my name tag, noting that I was one of them. It appeared that they had all become fast friends at the banquet, pairing off and whispering about odd occurrences in their lives, the unexplained. I felt like an outsider already and worried that I had blown it by not staying for the dinner to meet Guy Roberts. Because he was the main attraction, the large ballroom was a rush of people trying to find seats near the front. I imagined what other events that took place in this room were like. Medium budget weddings, sales conferences for lower tier companies, and perhaps occasional motivational speakers who had photos with Tony Robbins on their website. This was not the kind of place where big dreams were hatched. After I found a seat, I listened to the whispers of two women who said that guy had sat at their table, their biggest chance to know the truth about the afterlife, and not only had he been unkind to them, stuck up, one of the women said, but he spent half the time looking for someone better to talk to. Mid-conversation, he had stood up and announced, there's someone over there I'd rather speak to at the moment. They were paying for this. They had bought his books. They were keeping him afloat, they said. During his presentation in the morning, he smiled casually as if he hadn't slighted anyone and tapped on his controller to move his PowerPoint forward. He was a leader in near-death experiences, he told us. He was here to debunk death. There was an afterlife, and it was like America, but better. Better parks, better golf courses, rivers, streams, all the pets you loved and lost, and racial harmony. He laughed lightly when he said it, like he knew something incredible that we could not comprehend. I have evidence, he yelled at us. It's science. He paced the stage and people clapped. What I want to do for all of you is provide a safe space where you can come out of the spiritual closet. Everyone around me clapped harder. We're living in a time of fear, fear of your own bodily death, fear of the process of dying, fear of living the greatest life you have ever envisioned, fear of what's going on on the other side. All that fear hurts me. I can feel it. I'm consumed by all the fear in this room, and so are you. He stopped in the middle of the stage and adjusted his microphone. Do you know what, that you can find out exactly what's happening on the other side if you really want to? Do you want to? People around me screamed yes. I've studied this stuff for years, people, and inside of us, we each have something called a spirit phone, and most of us don't know how to use it. The people out there, he pointed past us toward the door leading out to the rest of the world. The people out there don't even know spirit phones exist. He shook his head like he really felt sorry for everyone out there as people around me took notes. The problem with our spirit phones is that the signal isn't switched on. Our loved ones are trying to reach us and we're missing their calls. They want to tell us what it's like so we can stop being afraid, but we're not answering. It felt good to believe that someone knew more than we did, that these experts were just withholding because it was obvious the masses couldn't take it. 
that made more sense than believing no one was controlling the boat. And so the boomers, women in bedazzled jeans and wedge sandals nodded along. They wanted Guy to give them the truth. I watched everyone being taken in by his assurances, but I just couldn't buy it. I don't know what I was searching for exactly, but it wasn't this. This just made me feel sick and desperate. He said that in order to get our spirit phones working, we would have to do the work of getting to a higher astral plane. It's called being tapped in. He was getting worked up again. When we get to the other side and see all the beauty there is to behold, we're going to be so overwhelmed, we'll need to take a nap. He got those kind of transmissions from people on the other side all the time, he said. They took a long nap after they died because the journey was arduous. While they relaxed on the other side, we were left here alone to manage our grief. It's unfair, isn't it, Guy intoned. Yeah, people called back. But that will be us soon, and you don't have to be afraid. Yeah, people called out again, though less enthusiastically than before. Someone's hand shot up in the crowd. Yes, Guy said, pointing to a man in a Tommy Bahama shirt with a faded palm print. I died once. My heart went out for four minutes on the operating table, but I didn't see green pastures. So where am I going? He asked. Guy stared at him and shook his head. Four minutes. Wow. Where am I going if I didn't see pastures? To hell, I said under my breath. If you didn't see the green pastures of heaven, you were obviously going to hell. A murmur started in the crowd. Guy knew he had to quiet it. You know, I want to tell you a little secret, he said, pacing back and forth. People around me leaned in, waiting for it. There are endless opportunities for soul growth. Did you know that? And you're just not there yet, sir. Thank you. I loved that. And I have to say, I really enjoyed this novel, even though you would think it might not be such an enjoyable read to read a novel that is in many ways about death and being lost. Um, and so, how did this novel come about? Good question. Um, so I really wanted to write a book about uh, like Virgin Mary apparitions and dealing with grief and sort of the uncanny. Um, and I wanted to set it in the American West. Uh, unfortunately, that novel was terrible. So <laughs> I... Uh, I, I decided to basically throw everything away, but keep what my protagonist, Evelyn, was doing, her name and maybe seven pages. Um, and I really started thinking about like de death and grief and, and what was at the core of what I was trying to investigate. Um, I had listened to a podcast called Criminal and there was an episode about exit guides. I had never known that was a thing you could really do. I knew about Jack Kevorkian and euthanasia and stuff, but I didn't really know that, that it was like a broader thing. Um, so I just started doing more research on that and really thinking about, you know, endings. And I wanted to focus not just on like death and dying, but all kinds of endings. Um, so I started over and I wrote in the first person and took my time. I think it took about six years to work on this book, but that was really at the core of it. Wow, six years is a long time, especially because there's oftentimes this expectation that we're going to create a new book every year. So how did you allow yourself the time that it took for this book to gestate? Because it's hard to give yourself the time to write at the speed that you need to write at. 
Yeah, no, it's so true. And in fact, when I was writing the other version of this book, I was on a two book contract and I had come out with the invaders and I was due this book and I was getting a lot of pressure to deliver it. And I was just writing to meet this deadline and, and frantically trying to meet that deadline. And I just felt farther and farther away from the book. And it just felt like it wasn't the book that I wanted to write. I was just writing a book to deliver a book. And I started having, you know, an existential crisis about it um, and begged to get out of my book contract. And <laughs> that didn't work the first time. Um, my agent is incredible and was like, we were trying to hatch a plan to get me out of this book contract. Cause I just like, I was getting asked for the blurb for sales before I'd even finished the book. Like it was a disaster. And I, it was like a slow motion car wreck. Um, as it happened, the second time I begged, they let me out of my book contract and I've never returned a check faster in my life. Like I had the money in my bank account earmarked to return in hopes that I could return it. And I, I needed the money really badly, but I just like needed the freedom more and just gave myself the time to write whatever book I wanted to write. And I think that moment of not feeling like, I don't know if this book will sell. I don't know if anyone will read it, but I'm just going to write the book that I want to write and it'll take as long as it take was like the most freeing thing I've done in since I remember. But yeah, you're right. Like it's crazy. People are just, we're treated like we're machines. <laughs> you know that better than anyone. <laughs> I, do. I do. It's really interesting because in general, I have a book out every three or four years at this point. And in fact, that's the cycle next. I have a, a couple books coming out next year. And so I'm on that cycle and it like I'm writing always. And it's, you know, people are like, it's been so long since you had a book out. And I, and I always think, no, it hasn't because a good book takes time to yeah. think about and to make mistakes with and, you know, find your footing with. Uh, so I appreciate that you're so open about the, what what this book took and also that sometimes even though you have a book deal in hand, it's not necessarily the right deal for the book that you end up producing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like the pressure of feeling like, oh, I need a book out soon. I need a book out soon. But like you said, not only do you need time to write, but I feel like you need time to live. And the questions that I've been thinking about in the last five years, last five, six years are not the same questions I was thinking about, you know, 10 years ago or 12 years ago. And I just think like, we need to give ourselves space to actually live. So we have something to, to like, write about. Um, I recently watched, well, I'd already seen it, but I watched uh, the musical Hamilton on Disney Plus. And one of the things I noticed with this second viewing is that beyond sort of the political issues of the show, it is a show that's deeply concerned with death, mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting because musicals are generally peppy and hey, let's just walk down the street and then break into song. Uh, <laughs> but was it difficult to convince editors that a book about a death doula and a woman who is sort of having these existential questions, was it a hard sell for you? Yeah, I think so. Like, I think in general, people don't want to think about death. They don't want to talk about death. I think we have like a really 
there's a wariness to even like look at death. It's as if we, if we don't talk about it, it's not going to happen. Right. Um, and that actually made me really think about how I was going to write this book. And I really wanted to make sure there was levity. Um, cause it is like obviously a really heavy topic. I, I mean, listen, Roxanne, even today, I'm like, does anyone want to read it about death, especially in COVID? No, I don't know. I mean, I guess, but I just, I feel really urgent to me, especially, especially now it feels really timely since death is all around us. And I think we don't have a healthy relationship with it. And, you know, I came from a place where you know, I was born in Poland, I grew up most of my life in America, but I think people in Europe have a different relationship to death. I was in Naples um, last October, and I was just so struck by how there's like, there's faces of the dead everywhere in these posters all around the city. And I just think it's so hidden away here. In mm -hmm. terms of like, trying to sell the book, I, I'm very lucky because I worked with Emily Bell at FSG, which was a total dream. So to me, like my dream scenario happened, but I would not say like people were knocking down my door. <laughs> Give me your death book, please. You know, death is, especially a death that you choose for yourself mm -hmm. is a very intimate thing. And so what kinds of research did you do um, to really get at uh, what these people that Evelyn is working with are experiencing? Mm -hmm. um, I've been thinking of, and I, I, as I thought about it a lot as I read this, because my mom has cancer and she's okay-ish, but it, it, I'm increasingly aware of mortality yeah. and of so many of the indignities around the descent into death whether it is fast or slow. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm wondering what kind of research you did and did you draw from personal experience because I know that you sort of recently lost your mother. Yeah, I mean, I think my, so my mother died in September and she's been sick for most, she had been sick for most of my life. She first uh, had stage four cancer when I was 12, like right off the bat and she, survived for 28 years but I think that her imminent sickness and even when she was in remission feeling like this could come back just felt like I I was always worried um, about what could happen um, so I would and in 2015 she got sick again and it felt like well you'll just get through it again but that's not what happened so I was working on the book and, and taking care of her and visiting her I took, um, I actually took courses with uh, death doulas to sort of see who would take these courses, um, the reasons why, and sort of what the practicalities of it. One mm -hmm. thing I do want to mention, the death doulas that I worked with are separate from assisted suicide, which, you know, they feel, the death doula that I worked with felt like it's, it's, sort of not allowing yourself to go naturally and having the full experience. But from my perspective, and, you know, I then looked into a lot of assisted suicide programs and the Dignitas and stuff, and really was thinking about, like, what 
the point of suffering is, especially when you're terminal and the people who decide I'm going to decide when I go, because what is the point of continuing my suffering? But it like I would say for, you know, four or five years, I was deeply thinking about death and sort of really thinking, too, about myself, what like what my choice would be um, for myself. And and really, like, you know, obviously people die suddenly. But in my experience, watching my mother die and suffer, um, it just felt to me like there has to be another way if you want one. Of course, she was I. <laughs> I told her I was writing a book about this and I, she always read all my books and gave me edits, whether I liked it or not. Um, <laughs> but I told her about this book and I was like, I don't think you should read it. And she was like, I have enough sadness in my life. I definitely don't want to read this, <laughs> but it, it's like, it's hard. I mean, to watch someone sort of go through that and you're right. Like it is the indignities of being ill is really difficult. Mm -hmm. Another thing I noticed uh, about the book is that it had a really slow pace. And I, I totally thought that was interesting because it mirrors what the death, what the process of dying oftentimes is. It, it, it's quite slow, even though I'm sure for the person who's dying, they have an entirely different perspective. But when you have to watch someone suffering, uh, time seems to really slow. So uh, how did you think about pacing and structure as you put life events together. Yeah, I, it's interesting because, and I sort of an early chapter um, is she's, she finds a bird, a hummingbird that's sick on her patio and she's really struck by how slowly death is. And I was thinking about that as I was writing it and this sort of like the process of Evelyn trying to desensitize herself as she keeps putting herself in these situations with different clients. And it just felt right to me that you, like, I wanted you to feel how long it takes for someone to die and that excruciating weight. Um, and even like the planning process with her clients takes weeks and you want to have a closeness um, with with that person but it that struck me especially as i was watching my mother it's like you want to avoid pain of watching somebody die so you want it to like hurry up even though you know you're gonna miss them so much and it just felt right to me to structure the novel in this way where you're tra watching her travel through uh, reckoning with herself and reckoning with death um and i, I also think you know, she takes a lot of anti-anxiety medication and that naturally like slows things down and, and that sort of like calmness made sense um, for the pacing. Mm -hmm. um, toward the end of the novel, at the end of chapter 39, um, you write, just as Bobby could not fathom getting married again, neither could I. And so my choice was to stay alone, but that didn't mean that being a woman alone meant something different from being a man alone. It meant I would always be afraid of something. And that was such an amazing just paragraph. Not, yeah, it's actually a whole paragraph. Um, but a really um, 
honest sentiment that I think a lot of women who do make the choice to be alone um, experience that you're always going to have to be afraid of something for all kinds of reasons. And so how did you come to the decision that Evelyn was going to end up as a woman alone? Because in many ways, her marriage with Bobby is something that also dies mm -hmm. uh, throughout the course of this novel. Or frankly, it was kind of dead at the beginning of the novel anyway. <laughs> like we never really see them together having any sort of joy. So it's clear, like, let's just put this marriage out of its misery. But yeah, how did you get to this place with Evelyn and that sort of confidence to just say, you know what, she's gonna be alone. Yeah, I mean, I it's interesting because I think there's such a fear of being alone um, as if like there's something wrong with you or you're unwanted. But I think there's so much power in making that choice for yourself of like, I don't want to lose myself in a relationship with another person again. I want to like have a relationship with myself. Mm -hmm. um, but I do. It, it is interesting that I was thinking about that a lot because part of the research that I did for this book was traveling alone a lot for the first time um, in my life. And I spent a lot of time in the desert. I spent a lot of time in houses in remote places in the desert. And I have often said, like, I can totally be alone, travel alone. I don't need anyone. I don't need anything. Midnight in the middle of the desert when headlights are flashing near you is a different thing altogether. Um, but I really like wanted Evelyn to have some space to reconnect with herself. And I think often we fill our time with other people so we don't have to face ourselves. And I really wanted to force her to face herself without you know, trying to cater to someone else or saying this person made me feel this way, like, be by yourself, see what it's like, and like, get to know yourself. Um, and especially at her age, I think 37, as you're cruising into your 40s, this feeling of like, I will never meet anyone again. So I have to just settle with anybody is more terrifying to me than being alone. Um <laughs> Because I just I, I I see it a lot, and I think it's a a lot of like fear based thinking, for lack of a better way of saying it. Mm -hmm. But I just like I don't know. I'm alone. I, I'm okay. And just being like, you're okay if you're alone. You still have value. Was like a thing that I wanted to explore in the book as well. What are some of the pleasures of traveling alone? and really not having to answer to anyone or, you know, put up with anyone's quirks, nor have anyone have to put up with your quirks. Yeah. I mean, I can drive as fast as I want. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is the realest thing. I am always told uh, by my wife that I drive too fast and I just think, okay, okay. I have, I, especially during the pandemic, I've been driving around a lot and I've, and there's certainly a lot less people on the road and I've been going like Eastern Sierras around there and I'm t like 95 miles per hour is like when I feel the most free. <laughs> um, and I would say like, I, you can stop 
like you are you have your own personal agency like I love traveling with people too I travel with friends and and I luckily travel with people who want to make stops and go to you know random ass places but just like the agency to have no destination or not be in a rush and not have to like let anybody down because you're not doing what they want to do like I just there's just it's freedom. I don't know. I feel very free, Roxanne. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really so happy for you because freedom is, I, 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 I can't talk. Freedom is so underappreciated sometimes for adult women, especially yeah. uh, in our late 30s, early 40s. Yeah. Uh, frankly, anytime after 35. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah. We, you know, freedom becomes even more valuable because for so many women at that age, freedom is like, uh, the very last thing that is available to you because of family, because of work, yeah. whatever. Um, but yeah, there is something incredibly freeing about driving as fast as you want into the desert. Yeah. Yeah. And just like, I don't have, no one's waiting for me at home. I don't have to come back when I, I'll come back when I feel like it. Mm -hmm. It's like, I have perverse joy from that. <laughs> Yeah, sometimes when a writer is working on a book, they read books that inform the the tone or the subject matter. Were there any books that you read and that informed your thinking as you wrote Life Events? I'm kind of a weirdo because I'm so worried about cribbing anything from anybody that I don't read fiction when I'm writing fiction. Like if I'm taking a break from writing, I'll read. Um, so I... I went on like a long drought of not reading anything, but I will say the first books that I read once I got out of like the real writing, the, the first draft was um, Rachel Cusk's trilogy. Huh? Uh, and I was just so wowed by how much her narrator withheld um, from the reader and like what her eye fell on and how you got to know her through like the way she moved through the world without her telling you anything. Mm -hmm. um, I, yeah, that I would say was like the most pronounced thing that I read. And I went back and started thinking about like, how much am I giving and how much should I hold back? Have I given too much? Mm -hmm. um, but I, I edit nonfiction, so I'm always reading people's essays and, and thinking about writing, even when I am working on books. But I can't, I, I try not to be too influenced. And I know that's like super weird. Uh, you know, it's not as weird. I, I don't find it weird because I too, am, I am definitely afraid of the same thing, of cribbing ideas, cribbing character traits and things uh, and so because i don't want any sort of unintentional osmosis to happen i tend to not really read much when i'm especially in the genre that i happen to be working yeah. I, like if i'm writing a non-fiction book like i am right now i can read all the fiction in the world and it won't matter it will help in fact just in, in terms of thinking about the sound of of a thing that i'm writing but uh yeah i don't think it's as crazy as you might think because that bleed does happen and it's not, it's rarely intentional, but. It keeps uh, me up at night though. <laughs> I, I mean, I always worry every time I see like someone who has made that misstep, whether intentional or not, I just think, 
it could happen to anyone. Yeah. It really could. Um, because we're surrounded by influence at all times. Yeah. Who yeah. are some of your literary influences more broadly? I mean, again, like Kusk for sure. I I after my mom died, I read every single thing Elena Ferrante has ever written. <laughs> like I just spent just days in my house uh I think I read like 1400 pages in a week just in like a fugue state <laughs> um I don't know you obviously <laughs> oh go on <laughs> I think like anybody who's willing to give themselves completely on the page even if they are withholding and going into like places that scare them really impresses me so much that I can't help but feel like push yourself there. And I think, you know, even though my narrators, and I would say like this narrator is probably the least self-destructive, even though she's still self-destructive, but she's sort of like grown up and grown out of it. She doesn't want to do that anymore, but I'm very much into women who are messy. And so any writer who's, looking at sort of the messiness of a woman's life is really appealing to me and writers that are willing to take risks uh, mm -hmm. with their, with their fiction and where they're willing to go. And I think like when I'm reading something and I feel like, wow, I might have been afraid to put that on the page. Then I know like we're really cooking. Yeah. <laughs> are you working on something new now? I haven't, I'm, I haven't written anything. I wrote an essay about my mom dying, which was the first thing I wrote in uh, the last, what month, what month are we? Eight? August. Nine months. The last nine months was the only thing I've written. I really wanted to give myself a break. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like in the pandemic too, I haven't really, it took me like a few months to even read anything. I was just watching a lot of reality TV. I couldn't even watch like narrative shows. Um, I don't even know what I would possibly work on. Like I just, I'm trying to like survive here. <laughs> it's just weird. I, I don't know. I, know. I know a lot of people are like, I'm working on all this stuff. I have more time. And I'm like, I don't know how anyone's getting out of bed right now, so. I agree. There, I think there's a lot of pressure on writers because a lot, I mean, for me, I, I do actually have more time because I've been touring nonstop since 2014. And so this is the longest I've been in one place. After two weeks, this was the longest I had been in one place in six years. And so I'm getting marginally more done because yeah. I'm in one place, but uh, I am not having the productivity bonanza that people assume I'm having. And I know a lot of other writers who are in similar situations because we're dealing with life and family. Right and just you know maybe a little fucking depression yeah. <laughs> or a lot of depression so I totally hear you like that you know maybe the writing isn't happening right now well I was thinking about you as it started because I also had been traveling certainly not as much as you but I was going to New York once a month for a week for like the last year at least and I just had completely lost my connection to my home I lost a connection to Los Angeles I just felt like in such an in-between space and I was like 
I like Roxanne is now like that you even more so I feel like we're always somewhere and so in some ways during this pandemic I've been really grateful to be able to reconnect with Los Angeles and reconnect with my home and just take a breath and I remember at the beginning of the year I was thinking I can't do this anymore I cannot travel this much I'm freaking out and unfortunately I willed this into existence (laughs) sorry everyone um but it's like yeah it's 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 such a weird time and I was talking to a friend and he was like if we if you're at 60 percent like you're okay you're doing great like our obsession with like powering through and getting through this and being like positive and happy like some motherfucking pandemic yeah, it's so it's so weird that like people are not necessarily appreciating like the gravity of what's going on. Like, not only is it a pandemic, which I think would be tolerable if there was someone with sentience yeah. in the house, um, but like when we're being led by just corrupt morons, like so it's like both evil and stupid. That yeah. it's just this, that's like a lethal combination, and it keeps me up at night just thinking, oh my god, so many people are gonna die. Yeah. So needlessly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If we're functioning at 60%, that's fine. Like all yeah. things considered, that's quite high. That's my best right now. And I'm, I have to be okay with it. <laughs> Good. Uh, I know that we have a, a very fine audience and they have questions. So if you have questions, um, use the ask a question feature and, um, we will, well, not we, but Carolina will answer those questions. Yes, keep them coming. Um, thank God, I could listen to y'all talk all day. Um, <laughs> we have a question uh, from Rachel uh, who asks, my mother recently passed in April and I've been alone this entire pandemic. So much of this conversation is hitting home for me. In your research for the book, were there any interesting insights about the judgments passed on people who want to take an active role in choosing how they die? Um, well, first, I'm sorry for your loss. Um, it's really tough. I, there are judgments, um, for sure. And I would say there's a real divide in the community from what I saw. And again, like I haven't, I spent some time in the death community, but I, there's certainly people who are doing incredible work, uh, and have been doing so for much longer. I think, you know, Yes, in one way. Yes. What was that? That was strange. My computer is freaking out. Um, Yeah, I mean, there's certainly judgments with how anybody handles anything when it comes to their own health. And I definitely noticed that even a person's personal choice, their family wasn't okay with it. And I think we need to think about sort of what's best for a person and what a person wants versus what we want. And I thought a lot about, you know, what it means for us to want to hold on to someone who is greatly suffering and what we're getting out of that when it's clear that a person is suffering. But again, like, I definitely didn't want to write a book being like, this is the best way 
like everyone should do this. I think it's really complicated. There's certainly a lot of moral judgment around it. Um, and it's obviously illegal in most states in the US. And it's a really complicated issue, but I was really interested in those complications and really thinking about like why people would make those choices and and who who would sort of benefit or lose out on uh, those choices being made. Um, keep the questions coming there. There's, will be time to hear a couple more and you can also take a look and vote up questions that you like. So um, maybe looking at other ones will inspire you. Uh, here's a question from Leon who wants to know, how did your relationship to the landscape of Southern California change in the course of working on the book? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I, so I wrote one book about Los Angeles before it was my first book and, and my character was like really enmeshed in the city and didn't really leave the city. Um, and in this book, I really, I was writing about Los Angeles, but I really wanted to look at the outskirts of Los Angeles and the desert communities specifically. And so I spent a lot of time um, in Yucca Valley and also up and down the 395, which features heavily in this book, which isn't really a desert community, but it's like the Eastern Sierras and really looking at the landscape of these places and towns like old mining towns and places um, where people had a lot of hope about building a place to create a community that sort of fell apart. Um, or didn't really pan out. And those like the hopes and dreams of Southern California and the West, I, I say this a lot, but I feel like the West in particular is a place where you can still disappear. You can be whoever you want. I spent a lot of time in West Texas and that also is in this book as well. Um, and really thinking about places where nobody knows who you are and you can be alone. And um, I really love that about California and, and the desert specifically. And you see like, you know, a few random houses outcrop, you know, on the side of the road. And I always would think like, why did you choose to put a house there? Like, it's, it's fascinating to me, but yeah, I, I love the West and I love California. Um, and I, and I drive around a lot and try to find like weird places to stop. And so it's sort of, I think this book is like my love letter to the West in California. Hmm. Here's a question from uh, Brenna, um, who asked, just like you said that working with the book offered insight into the ways people can die. Uh, I'm curious if or how the book changed your relationship with grief. Um, that's a good question. I so this book in particular, and I I want to be clear. Like, I couldn't quantify what grief felt like losing a parent, even though that's something Evelyn is so preoccupied with in the book. That like fear of what's going to happen. And so to me, I really wanted to write about this idea of pre grief, pre grieving, and that the feeling of something bad is going to happen. I'm really like nervous and anxious about it. Um, and, and so it wasn't until my mother died that I really thought about like what grief 
actually feels like when you lose somebody so close to you. And my mother died when I was in the process of editing the book. Um, and I did some revision based on that. But I think grief is such an out of control feeling. And I would say that I'm a person who likes to be in control. And my relationship to grief now is letting it happen. Um, and being okay with the fact that it's messy and that I'm, I like am giving space to grief in a way that I think a previous version of myself would have tried to control it and be like, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. Um, I think that's a very, it's a societal issue that we have. And I was saying this in an interview last week the fact that we have to go back to work like a week or two after somebody dies is so psychotic to me. And this idea of like, carry on, move on, you know, you're like, get over it. I, I, it, I just think like we need a, a complete revision of how we handle grief and, and what space we give grief. But um, here's maybe our question that's going to bring us home, and this is a question for both of you. Um, Morgan wants to know, uh, what is the best thing you've done to take care of yourself during shelter in place in the pandemic? Um, I've tried to, I've done two things. I've tried to go outside as much as possible, as safely as possible. And that has been going to remote places. Like I'm near Yosemite right now um, in the woods and just letting myself be outside. Cause I, I, I live alone and I, and I work all the time. So sitting in my house all the time working has not been good for my mental health. Um, so finding ways to go outside has been really big for me. And I would say also reconnecting with friends and checking on people and creating a network of people who check on each other has also been like a major uh, saving grace for me during the pandemic. I would have to say that reconnecting with my writing and not putting pressure on myself because I tend to put a lot of pressure on myself uh, and I, I'm a bit of a workaholic. And so I've been trying to do the work that needs to get done because I'm drowning in work, but also to do something that I want to do that I enjoy doing. And so I've been writing a little for fun and it might become something and it might not. And I really shouldn't be doing that because I have so many deadlines, but, uh, I just have been allowing myself the space to remember that I actually love writing. And I've also been cooking a lot, uh, maybe too much, but like I've gotten, I've gotten like full house on the little house on the prairie. I make my own ketchup now. I don't give a fuck. I make my own steak sauce. Yes, I do. I make my own chicken stock. Listen. I love that for you. Oh yeah. I'm living my truth. I make my own tortillas. I yeah. just really get down. So, Can I come to your front yard and just like leave me? Oh, yeah, <laughs> distance uh, celebrating not all the time, but we've had uh, I think in the past five months like three gatherings, a very small gathering where everyone wears a mask unless they're eating. 
And um, it's been great, actually. Just I'm not even the most social person, but I got to tell you, whew, I, these days I'm like, oh, do you want to come over and sit on my driveway and we'll talk? Yeah. And, uh, I'll serve you some wine. Yeah. My yeah. backyard has become very, like, uh, like three people come have a sound bath, come have wine, come mm -hmm. sit in the grass on a blanket. Like it's, you have to, cause otherwise it's just, I think especially if you're in a place where you don't have like a family readily available, you really need to find your people so that you can feel connected. Cause this is such a lonely and like really destabilizing time. I mean, pandemic, yes, fascism as well. Like, let's be real here. Yes. It's just, you know, we, ha we have to do what we can. Yeah, we do. And I, I appreciate seeing the ways in which community is developing. And, um, you know, we shouldn't be having to fill the cracks and the margins of our culture, but you know what, thank goodness people are, especially in here in LA, watching how people are banding together to support unhomed communities has been really revelatory for me. Yeah. And, um, it has made me feel a lot better about humanity and it is, it's gotten me doing like volunteering and all sorts of things that I, I've, I've always thought about doing but never made the time to do. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of cool. But it's also really fucked up that these problems exist and yep. are solvable. Anyway. Well, there's a lot of excitement in the chat about participating in both the grass <laughs> and the driveway wine. Um, but I think this is like a perfect place to send us all out into the night, either to the nearby grove of trees or to the refrigerator. Um, uh, it's been such a treat hearing from you both. Thank you both for taking the time. Everyone, y'all, get your copy of Life Events. It's, as you have seen tonight, a book we desire, a book we need, a book that will take us away and deeper inside. Um, Carolina Václaviak, Roxanne Gay, thank you so much for your time and for joining us. And have a lovely night, y'all. You too. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Roxanne, and thanks, Skylight. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.